This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Andrew Wheeler. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sugar farmers, practicing sustainability to protect the environment and supporting jobs, communities, and consumers. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Administrator Andrew Wheeler next. America's sugar farmers have spent decades investing in sustainability. Being good stewards of the environment and protecting our air, land, and water is a personal mission for sugar growers. Many of America's sugar growers are multi-generational farmers, and sustainability means a great deal more than just preserving this legacy. It also means supporting sugar workers, healthy communities, and the consumers who rely on this essential ingredient. The sugar industry's commitment to sustainability is a commitment to a brighter future for us all. And it's made possible by America's no-cost sugar policy. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler is fully aware of previous legal challenges to products containing dicamba for post-emergence weed control but says after reviewing over 65 new studies and other research, he's confident these products are ready for market. I have a lot of confidence. Um, our career scientists spend a lot of time we review. We, in addition to the studies submitted by the companies, we also did our own literature search, looked at how everything, um, all, all the scientific research behind dicamba, and we believe with the new buffer zones and the national cutoff dates, that we are both responding to the Ninth Circuit Court opinion as well as the recent scientific evidence that we received. What action have you seen by farmers and by industry to step up and to fulfill their environmental responsibility while at the same time uh, protecting this chemistry? Well, I think that farmers are very anxious to use this um, across the board. I've heard from so many different farmers. I've visited several farms just this week, and everyone has been um, very happy that we have provided the five-year certainty. You know, they tell me that they like to order their seeds you know, more than a year in advance. They like to plan for it and what they're going to be able to plant, and that having this five-year certainty is going to be very helpful to them. And I believe they want to use this product responsibly. The complaints about it very early on, have significantly dropped off, but the complaints that we heard very early on a couple of years ago was before we had the buffer zones and before all the, the safeguard practices were put into place. And now today with the new label restrictions, the new national cutoff dates, the buffering agent, the buffer zones themselves between the crops, I, I think this is going to be able to be used responsibly by farmers across the board. You alluded to this earlier. A court decision this year in the Ninth Circuit would have vacated the registration of those products. If this challenge were to come again, do you have evidence your agency can step in and present to the court to prove that this product is viable for use? Absolutely. You know, the new studies that we have that we reviewed the additional labeling restrictions, part of the problem on the Ninth Circuit decision was that you know they were critical of the confusing label restrictions. By having the one cutoff date for both crops, I, I think, is, is key to answering the court's concerns. We took into account a whole host of new science on our decision. So I, I think we addressed the issues that were raised in that litigation, and if this were to be litigated, 
again, I believe we have the answers to the questions raised. I want to present a thought and just see if you have feedback here. Sometimes it seems like science is up for debate with not much delineation between a proven, replicated piece of information and some hearsay that might come from someone's uh, study or someone's opinion. Is that a challenge for you, especially as we face uh, the, the judicial branch coming over uh, your agency and the regulations that you offer? It's absolutely a challenge. The courts have certainly veered into scientific questions and second-guessing scientific decisions by our career scientists. That happens, I'm not saying this case in particular, I don't want to point fingers at any particular court or uh, judges, but you know, I think overall we have seen judges get more involved in scientific decisions which I think is challenging. Um, when I make a decision here at the agency, I'm listening to our career scientists. I'm listening to the advice of our outside science boards. The course may have a few expert witnesses, but that's not the same as having a cadre of scientists providing expert opinion to me on a regular basis and through briefings. And my ability to make the decisions, I think, is much easier because of the scientists that we have, and I don't see that being replicated in the court proceedings. To the bigger picture, your agency is given the authority to regulate which products and chemistries farmers and consumers can use to control pests. However, it almost seems lately that the EPA's certification and approval of products is coming under these challenges. In the courtroom, all they have to do is convince the jurors. On the EPA stand, you have to stand up to the truths of science. It's a it's a duplicate standard, and I wonder, is it one that you need support now from the Congress or other to protect your decisions? That's a good point, and our processes are laid out for us by Congress. You know, switching topics for just a minute, you know, the PFAS chemical family. Um, this is the, the chemicals that, that make up, that were used in Teflon and Scotchgard and Gore-Tex, and they're the forever chemicals. There's over 5,000 of them that have been identified, over 1,200 in commerce, and there's a lot of political pressure from Congress for us to move very quickly, in particular on setting a drinking water standard. But under the Safe Drinking Water Act, passed by Congress in 1996, they laid out the process that they want us to use before we issue. It's called a maximum contaminant level um, under the Safe Drinking Water Act. They, they had laid out that process. And we're following the process, and we're being attacked for going too slow. But the process is based in science, and it's based in real-world data that we have to collect. I actually think our agency is you know, between a rock and a hard place at times, where you know, we have these processes laid out by Congress, and when we follow them, you know, the courts think we should do them differently, and Congress sometimes thinks we should do them faster, even though they're the ones that created the processes for us. So it, it, is, um, it can be challenging, but I think our staff here at the agency have really risen to that. You know, and, and during this administration, President Trump wants us to be more transparent, he wants us to base our decisions on the science, and that's what we're doing. And so all I can do is continue to be transparent and to provide certainty. And uh, farmers in particular, the president has, has told me to be transparent and provide certainty to them. And so that's why we're trying to provide five years' worth of certainty for dicamba and why we're trying to provide certainty in so many areas, of, particularly on the pesticides. You had a situation earlier this year when one state wanted to say that glyphosate caused cancer, but there wasn't a replicated science necessarily that agreed. So the EPA was 
again, you fell under the scrutiny of uh, the opinion of a state and from some other. Sure, and we looked at the state, at that state in particular, at how they made their decision, the science that they used, and my scientists did not agree with, with their decision. And, you know, the, the states will sometimes reach different decisions from, from the, the EPA. They are operating under different statutes. They have different regulatory levels. Sometimes they don't need as much information to make a regulatory decision at the state level as we do at the federal level for EPA. When we make a decision that applies to all 50 states, we have to make sure that we have all the information that's available in order to make the in order to make the decision and the actual standards that are set in our statutes which are of course passed by Congress are often different than the standards that are in state laws and so that does get confusing I think for the public at times when they look and they wonder why a state has a, has a particular regulatory decision and we have a different regulatory decision a lot of times it goes to the standards that are used to make those decisions are different depending upon the state law versus the federal law. Turn the corner here. Last week, Jim Collins uh, of Corteva was on with us on the same program, and he discussed their decision to stop producing chlorpyrifos. It was really more about dollars and cents, and also at the same time to transition to some new formulations. Here's the question for you. From where you sit, do you see some new and perhaps greener products in the pipeline that can be reliable to uh, help farmers control pests and protect the environment? Oh, absolutely. Um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of different new pesticides coming online that we're being asked to review and, and register. Um, the, the science is really incredible here. Um, you, you know, we're also looking at um, the, the the pips, which is where you you have genetically modified organisms as far as pesticides, and, and we're trying to streamline that review process both here at um, EPA as well as USDA. Um, so there's a lot of advancements going on, and you know as these advancements continue to to grow, we're seeing greener products, greener chemistry, and you know green chem- chemistry was first discussed by the agency back in the '90s, and we've been encouraging innovations in that area, and we still are, and we're trying to at this point streamline our processes for the review of those types of, of products so we can get them out in the marketplace a lot faster. You know, we know how to review the chemicals and the pesticides that have been used, and when we re-register them, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, in order to get a new product, though, approved, it does take longer, so we're trying to streamline that process so we can encourage more innovation and we can encourage greener products getting out there into the marketplace. Does the EPA need the directive of perhaps new laws, or are the existing laws that you have to regulate these new chemistries, these new biologicals or gene-edited crops that are in the pipeline. Do you have the support that you need? I believe we do have the support we need. A lot of it is changing sort of the mindset and the, and the bureaucratic process that we have and changing the, the reviews and, and, and how we operate internally through our processes. And in order to do that, we implemented the lean management system, which is also called the Toyota system across the board at EPA, in order to improve the efficiency of our processes. We have seen some dramatic improvements across the board. And this is something that you know we've been working really strong on for the last two and a half years. And we're at the point where this year, for example, all of our senior executive service, these are the senior career managers, are required to have a lean management process as, as part of their 
performance evaluation system. So we are judging our managers on how well they implement new processes and improvements to our existing processes. So we're seeing improvements such as how fast it takes us to review a permit application or issue a compliance report when we do an inspection. All those have improved dramatically across the board, and we're using it in processes such as the approval process for pesticides or a risk assessment process under our chemical law, the TSCA law. So we're, we're seeing some improvements, and I think that that's really where, where we need to focus right now. I'm not, I don't believe at this point that we need new legislation. I'd like to give you the opportunity to comment because it was recently that you offered some new regulation for exclusion zones. Uh, some challenged your decision. Others were pleased, NASDA and certain farm groups, that there was now a consistency toward the information of 25 feet for ground uh, sprays and 100 feet for aerial. What's behind those and, again, your confidence level with those zones? I'm very confident with those zones. And, you know, we made several common sense changes in the AEZ regs. You know, we heard from a lot of farmers that complained about it. Part of it was um, we were requiring the farmers to ensure that there was nobody off of their property that could be exposed. They didn't have the legal right to do that. And we heard from the states that said they couldn't enforce that either. You know, if you have somebody walking down the the road outside your farm, you can't stop them from doing that. And it, the regs that were, were were promulgated back in 20, what's 15, 2016, required farmers to do that. They also required that if you were on the property, you had to vacate the property, which meant the farmers' families would have to leave. Um, I, I think... The, the, farmer, the farmers are going to protect their families. I don't think the nanny state needs to step in and tell the farmer you, you know, what they need to do in order to protect their, their, their spouses and their children. So we, you know, we put some more common sense in here. And as far as the buffer zones, you know, we believe that the science shows that that's, you know, that's the right um, buffer zone to have for AEZ. And it, you know, I think it's important that we kept the still stringent requirements for the applicators themselves. But we took out some of the some of the other aspects that really was micromanaging farmers, and it's it really just did not work. Mr. Bevstrad, it seems as we are finding a, a lot more environmental groups than we did at one time, and following one particular congressman from Texas uh, raising a flag, you offered uh, a request for the Department of Justice to have a look at where some of the funds are coming from from these environmental groups and their challenges. What was behind your letter and what are your fears? Well, behind the letter was the request from the congressman from Texas who wanted me to look into whether or not these environmental groups are receiving foreign funding and are trying to influence U.S. policy. And I think this is more on the energy side than the agriculture side, but whether or not these environmental groups are lobbying on behalf of foreign requests. And, you know, you can think back to, um, you know, trying to close down, for example, or, or attack our, our extraction industries for fossil fuels, oil and gas, or coal, in order to create a, a competitive advantage for the other countries. You know, that, that's important to know. Um, but as I, as I responded to the congressman, foreign countries are allowed to lobby the EPA. They can file comments with us on our rulemakings, and they often have. But it has to be in the open. They, they can't do it secretly. There is the, the, uh, the FAR law. It's basically a foreign advisor law that, that if you are lobbying on behalf of a foreign entity, you have to register with Department of Justice to say that you're lobbying on their behalf. 
and so that that is a legitimate issue and, and concern because if you look at the, a lot of these environmental groups that have received funding from some of these foundations with international funding, they aren't um, filing the paperwork saying that they are representing foreign views. So if they are, in fact, receiving funds from foreign countries, they need to register so that everyone knows that they are lobbying on behalf of a, of a foreign entity. And that is important in the, in the rulemaking process. When we receive comments from, from anyone, whether it's an, a company or a private citizen or environmental organization, we should know what's behind the comment. And if it's coming from a foreign government or a foreign corporation, um, that should be disclosed. Mr. Administrator, I wonder if you might be able to share the EPA position on why information that's surrounding the granting of these small refinery exemptions needs to be protected. The small refineries have, when they file their information with us for the, for the small refinery exemptions, a lot of the information they claim is confidential business information. And that is allowed under the law. The Clean Air Act allows um, companies to file information that is um, confidential to their business operations, such as perhaps maybe the, uh, the number of gallons that they're producing on a given day or, or the other financial information that's required for a small refinery exemption. Um, the, the Clean Air Act does allow them to, f- use, to file it under confidential business information. There was a Supreme Court case two years ago reminding agencies and departments that if something is confidential and has been filed by a, an entity as, as confidential, that we have to make sure that we protect it. So, you know, I'm under a legal obligation to protect information that is legitimately filed as confidential business information. And I understand that that upsets people and that people want to know all the, all the facts and figures. Now, we did um, press back on the refiners a year and a half ago, and we created a dashboard on our website where, for the first time ever, we're posting um, as much information as we can about the applications that we receive. It may not be everything that... Um, that opponents um, would want to see, but it's everything that is not filed confidential. Um, if Congress um, wants to get involved in that issue, um, you know, they, it would probably take changing the statute itself as far as confidential business is concerned. We have made as much of the information available in public as, as we can legally. If I were to disclose the confidential business information, we would be sued by those companies, and based on the Supreme Court case from two years ago, I think, I think they would win. We have a, a duty and obligation to, to keep that information confidential. It does seem to me that the country is at a cornerstone and direction of the fuel that it's going to use uh, to move about the nation, whether for passenger vehicles or even for industry. You have mandates that have been offered by one governor. You have legislation that's being introduced that would phase out uh, combustion engines and move us to uh, uh, toward electricity. The future appears, though, of our direction uh, to be influenced a lot by an environmental agency with regard to emission standards. So if we're going to move to electric vehicles, can coal still be a part of the electric generation process with new technology? And are we giving those ethanol uh, and biodiesel fuel blends all the credit that perhaps they deserve with regard to emission standards. So, first of all, coal does have a future. I think coal is important for baseload generation. It's, it's interesting some of the proclamations and the promises that some politicians are making as far as 
what's going to fuel our vehicles into the future. You know, government can certainly be technology forcing, but I don't think the government should pick winners and losers between different fuel sources. I think that should be done in, in, the, in the free market. What, as a regulatory agency, what we do is we set the standards for each of the different fuels that people use. And that's what I believe the role of a regulatory agency is. And in the past, I'm, some of our predecessors have tried to bend the Clean Air Act, for example, to try to force technology or force ch- choices between fuels, and I think that's inappropriate. Um, if Congress wants to, um, I, I think that's certainly within the purview of Congress. But, you know, I, I don't think government should ever pick winners and losers between technologies because I think the, we need to let the free market move and innovation. You know, government regulations and government proclamations stifle innovation. You know, government's proper role, in my opinion, is funding different in, innovative technologies, encouraging, taking away roadblocks to approvals of technologies. I, I think we need to encourage everything. And when we pick winners or losers like what you know, the governor of, of, of California said that he wants all electric vehicles by 2035. He actually has to have the approval of EPA to do that. I won't be the EPA administrator in 2035. I intend to be the EPA administrator for the next few years, but I won't be here in 2035, so I'm not <laughs> sure what that administrator at that point will, will say or do. But, it's, you know, it's interesting. Last year when we were reviewing the CAFE standards, my staff um, showed me some studies that showed that people who bought electric cars, the next vehicle they bought, um, a majority of them were not electric cars. Um, I, I think electric cars are great and fine, but I think we need to have that. The American people need to have that choice on what they want to fuel their vehicles, whether it be uh, electricity, natural gas, gasoline, ethanol, and all of those sources can be made more energy efficient and cleaner, and they all are getting cleaner. And I think it's important that we don't pick as government one of those products for the future, but we allow all of those products to compete in the open marketplace. Mr. Administrator, we want to thank you for your service to the nation and protecting the environment and also working so closely with agriculture. Thanks for your time and thanks for being with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and sir, you have the last word today. Well, I just want to remind the American public that under President Trump, air pollution has been reduced 7%. We have invested over $40 billion in clean water infrastructure across the country. On the Superfund side, we cleaned up 27 Superfund sites last year, the most in any single year since 2001. We got another 27 cleaned up this year for a total of 82 during our first term, which coincidentally is the same number that the Obama Biden administration did in eight years. So we have gotten what they did in eight years done in four years. So I'm very proud of our record. We're cleaning up the environment. The air and water is cleaner today than when President Trump took office. And it's not just the actions of the EPA, but it's working with the states, local governments, and it's working with farmers. So thank you. Our thanks to EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sugar farmers practicing sustainability to protect the environment and support jobs, communities, and consumers. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.